God's word this morning comes from the first part of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And I'm going to have you do it with me. I'll do it, the, the first part, and then I'll break it down and invite you to repeat after me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. And you repeat after me. Shema Israel. What? We're going to do it one more time. We've just upset every Jew on the planet. Let's try it again. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Repeat after me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is your God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. A hundred years after Jesus, another great rabbi was about to meet his death. And as the Romans had captured Rabbi Kiva as a part of the uh, putting down of the last great Jewish revolt against Rome, they took him in the middle of the night and began to execute the death sentence upon him by taking uh, sharp instruments and flaying his flesh just peeling his flesh. As night turned to dawn, this is what they heard from Akiba, as it was required of all Jews. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, he started, as they peeled his flesh back. You see, the Shema has long been central to the faith of the people of Israel. And since the days of Akiba, now pious Jews, if they're able, try to recite the Shema at their death as well. And Rabbi Akiba was doing it, though, at his time because it was so central to the life and faith of Israel that you recited the Shema at first light when darkness turned to dawn, and then you recited Shema when darkness came, twice a day, every day. And then if you were to study God's Word, if you were to study Torah, you recited it again. You committed yourself and your life to God before you heard God's Word and studied God's Word. The Jews called this in Jesus' day being born again. They were born again when you recommitted your life to God. And so for most of them, at least three times a day, every day, they recited the Shema. The Shema was central to who they were as a people. It distinguished distinguished them from every other religion in that part of the ancient Near East. And the Shema continues to be central to the people of God, to the Jews, uh, throughout the centuries. In fact, in the uh, days uh, after World War II, when when allies would come and liberate uh, concentration camps, they would find uh, bodies piled up, and they weren't sure who was still alive. And who was dead in one way was the person who knew Hebrew would come to where a pile was and began to recite, Shema Israel. And if they heard any sounds from underneath, that was the Jewish victim still alive, and they would try to dig the person out. Because there were so many uh, refugees made by the war, children's, children who became orphans, one of the ways that they discovered uh, the Jewish orphans and tried to put them in Jewish homes is they would go to the orphanages after World War II in Europe and you would walk into an assembly of children and you would say, Shema Israel. And whoever joined in, they knew was a Jewish child. And they put them then with parents who would continue to raise them in that faith. 
Shema was so central to who the Jews were. It was central in Jesus' day. They asked Jesus one day, what's the greatest commandment? Well, that was a no-brainer. And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus never came to overturn the great commandment. Jesus came to live it out in the flesh. Uh, one of my friends and one of your pastors, Scott Hare, was uh, with Ray Vanderland in Egypt and Israel uh, a few weeks ago. And he said one of the things that scholars believe about the book of Matthew is that Matthew arranges the temptations of Jesus in the exact order of the Shema. So that you see Satan tempting Jesus not to love God with his will, his whole will. Tempting Jesus not to uh, give up his life for God, his soul. Tempting Jesus not to uh, use his uh, power and possessions to trust God for that. And so you see that in the temptation, Jesus actually lives out the Shema and lives it out in the rest of his life as well. The Shema was fundamental and central to who Jesus was as a Jew, and therefore it seems reasonable to conclude that the Shema is central to who we are as Christians, as the people of God. Shema means hear, listen, accept, and do it. It has all those meanings. So what we're going to do very briefly this morning is I'm going to walk you through the Shema, the uh, parts of it so that you might understand it. But the hope and the prayer is then that you will leave here and do it. Shema means do this. Don't just hear it. Do it. Let's look at the three parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. For a millennium, rabbis have been discussing this. And when Hebrews talk about the heart, they're talking about the, the command center of the person. They're talking about the, the center of your being. This is the place where your thoughts and your actions and your emotions all flow from this place. It is the source of who you are. But what the rabbis recognized is that in the source of who you are, in your heart come both good things and occasionally bad. And if you've ever spent time in our construction zones, you've probably been like me and thought one or two things that weren't from the good part of you. But one of the things the rabbis were teaching is both good urges and evil urges are both to be brought before God. You are to love God with an undivided heart. With the best that you are, you bring before God, but also your failings you bring before God. Your total heart, you love God with your entire being. And one of the things they also said is that means you can love God and still strive to love God even while you're messing up, even while you're sinning. There's no mistake so great that it prevents you from continuing to try to live out Shema. Even though your evil urge may have gotten you at the moment, there's still the good urge in your heart, and you direct all of that to God. So you love God with both the good and the bad. You can, the rabbi said, sin and still love God. No sin separates you from God if you're willing to again recommit and love God with your whole being, all your heart, all your soul. For centuries, the rabbis interpreted it this way. All your soul means even if it costs you your soul. In other words, even if it costs you your very life. I will love God even if the love of God kills me. Now, in the history of the Jews, as you well know, this has been the case on a number of occasions. And so the way that people interpreted it was, I will love God no matter what, even under the threat of taking my life, even if they do take my life. Since it was dark turning into dawn... 
the disciples of Rabbi Akiba were there with him as the Romans were just tearing him to shreds. You see, disciples always followed their rabbi to the very end. That makes Peter and his crews failing all the more crushing to them. Because it's unthinkable that a rabbi would ever be deserted by his disciples at any point. And Akiba's rabbis are, I mean, disciples are right there. And they hear him recite the Shema while he's being torn to death at daylight. And they see him in the daylight, smiling as he does it. So one of the disciples asked, Rabbi, why are you smiling at your death? And he said, I have always hoped that I could live out the Shema, love God even at the cost of my life, and now I'm getting a chance to do it. Love God, even if it costs you all that you have your very life. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you go out and seek martyrdom. But I am suggesting that those of us who would say in the Shema we're willing to die for God could at least stop to ask ourselves, are we even bothering to live for God? That would be the starting point. Akiba and Jesus lived every moment for God. So their willingness to die for God comes as no surprise. It is the logical extension of willing to live your whole life for God. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul. And finally, with all your might, some interpretations say strength, uh, another uh, interpretation, uh, biblical interpretation, which is closer, translation to reality, says resources. The rabbis taught for uh, the last 3,000 plus years that this means all that you have, you bring to God. All of your time, all of your talents, all of your possessions, all of your money, it all goes to God. That is your, your might. That's all that you have. And they long taught that everything they had belonged to God, and was to be given to God. Now, you know, as a way that they express this, uh, they encourage the biblical practice that we still encourage this day of tithing, where 10% of what God has given you, you give back to God. Uh, the Pharisees, who are unfortunately and unfairly smeared by many who are Christians, would give 20% of their income to God. We could use one or two or five of those today. Because one of the things that happens is, we're having difficulties of people living into that part of the Shema. I heard a statistic um, last week that the average North American Christian who's active in, uh, in a Protestant church gives about 2.5% of uh, their income uh, to God through the church. That's a little short. And I did some math for you real quick. That means in our congregation, if we're typical, about $10 million every year it's just not going into what God wants done. People aren't fed. Children aren't reached. Expansions aren't made through the youth. That's part of the Shema. But you might say, well, all isn't 10%. What about the other 90? Well, this is what the rabbis taught about that. That every dollar you spend, everything that you spend, should glow with God's love. In other words, everything that we do with our money ought to honor God. It ought to bring a smile to God in some way. And that's how you love God with everything that you have. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. You love God with an undivided loyalty. You give your very life to God and everything you have with it. Now, this is a tough thing. And if you're like me, you stumble and you're striving to live out the Shema in your life. But when I became convinced that it was as central for the Christian as it was for the Jew, I remember asking Ray Vanderland when we were in Israel 
Okay, break this heart, soul, and might thing down for me again. You know, give it to me in chunks that I can, I can do. And he said to me, well, I could do that, David. He said, but you need to know the rabbis also taught another interpretation of the Shema, which was this. If you give God all your heart and all your soul and all your might, what else is there? What's left? If you give God everything you have and everything you are, what's left? It's about totality of commitment. It's about all of you all the time, all of me all the time offered up to God. That's the Shema. Or as they teach at one church, they used to tell their uh, people trying to be disciples, 98% commitment to God is about 2% short. Shema was about all. But this is what you must remember. Just as as with the Ten Commandments, just as with all 613 of the commandments in the Old Testament, God's commandments are always for our blessing. They are always for good, first of all, for us. And I thought about that in my life. I thought about that, that as I go chasing down for everything for me, how at the end of the day I end up with so little. But those days when I bring everything I am and have to God, I end up with so much more. Ray loves to tell the story that he heard from a missionary to India who told him about a poor man who had to beg for his food, and he would sit there by the side of the road on the way into a town, and he would hold out a bowl and hope to get grains of rice. And on a good day, he might get 30 or 40 or 50 grains, and and that was enough to eat. On a bad day, much less. This particular day, he only had eight grains of rice in his bowl. But he saw a commotion, heard a commotion rather first, and then saw a, a large parade moving toward him, elephants and and horses and people dressed in fine attire. And as he watched it get closer, he realized it was the Maharaj. It was the prince. And he looked at his bowl and said, Jackpot, this is my lucky day. The prince is coming by. Sure enough, the prince came by and stopped when he got by him. And before he got down off this elephant, he said to him, How, much grain, how many grains of rice do you have in the bowl? And he said, I've got eight. And the prince climbed down and said, I want you to give me. The rice. And he thought to himself, well, this isn't how charity works. And he said, I only have eight. I'll, here, you may have four. And so the prince reaches into the bowl and takes four grains of rice. Gets back on his elephant. Goes back down the road toward town. And the beggar is just crushed. It's a big day. <laughs> He's lost half of what he has. So he looks in the bowl, and sure enough, there's the four grains of rice. But there's also four nuggets of gold. One for each grain the Maharaj took. And as he saw that, he looked up and he screamed, Why didn't I give him everything? Why didn't I give him all of it? That's the Shema. It's about giving God everything we have and finding out how much more we get in return.